This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Whole genome sequencing is used for adults and children every day to assess risk for thousands of diseases. You probably know this. You listen to this podcast. Well, I want to tell you that ORCID, a genetics company led by scientists from Stanford, is able to do this for IVF embryos. Instead of just waiting for a diagnosis, parents can assess if their embryos have genetic variants known to cause severe neurodevelopmental disorders, pediatric cancers, birth defects, and more before the child's even born. No other tests can detect these issues so thoroughly so early. So check them out at orchidhealth.com, O-R-C-H-I-D-H-E-A-L-T-H.com, and use the code RAZIB when signing up. Hey, everybody. Today I'm going to talk about the CAST system, something some of you may have heard about. Um, It's kind of in the news right now. Um, Partly it's because of the American uh, tendency of co-opting terms from other societies and reusing them. So there is a book by Isabel Wilkerson, a journalist, uh, which is about caste, um, and it does cover caste in India somewhat, but really it's about caste in the United States, uh, you know, the division between blacks and whites. It's called Caste, the Origins of Our Discontents, and that's been confusing some people uh, because caste in the United States or caste in a generic sense is different than caste in the Indian context. And obviously, the caste in the Indian context does predate caste uh, in the United States by a bit. So um, to clear up some of these semantic confusions, I want to talk caste mostly about the Indian context and uh, contrast, contrast it with caste in other contexts, uh, other times and places, and uh, show how you know they differ somewhat, and there is uniqueness there. And so um, people should be maybe a little bit more cautious about throwing... Uh, uh, the, the word cast around like it's so easy, um, you know, uh, conceptually. So um, I want to uh, talk first about caste in India. As many Indian uh, listeners will know, uh, the word itself is not of Indic origin. It's not Indian. It's not from Sanskrit. It's from casta, uh, which refers to color uh, in Portuguese. And so it is... Uh, a European origin word to describe an Indian concept. But there are words in the Indian um, context which which use, uh, which are used to describe caste. So there, there's two primary concepts. Uh, there's varna, which is equivalent to color and it's equivalent to the castes. They usually read about in elementary school in the United States. And then there's jati, which is a more complicated term. Uh, often it is translated as community, and um, jati is uh, a much more fine-grained and detailed um, set of, um, you know, uh, social norms, folkways, endogamous uh, communities uh, than caste, which is a which is varna, which is a, a broad conceptual, uh, broad conceptual, um, you know, categorization uh, that's more. It's more useful for intellectual, academic, um, you know, context. So, for example, uh, 
if someone tells you, I mean, someone could tell you that they're Vashya, which is uh, kind of a, you know, freeborn, you know, maybe traders or merchants or something like that. Okay, uh, but but really, nobody in the real world is is Vashya. They're Modbania or something like that. Um, they're they're a jati. They're a very very specific subcaste. You could call them. And that's the group that has a common temple, um, that maybe have a common religion, that intermarries only amongst themselves, and you know have these villages that they live in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Vasha themselves uh, is, I think, Larry Wall, the inventor of Pearl, would call it semantic sugar. It's a way to categorize a lot of communities that have approximately the same ritual status in the uh, what we call the Hindu religion, and also social status often a related number of um, professions uh, and, um, you know, often now genetically related, and we're going to get into that. But it's an abstraction uh, that brackets a large number of communities. Uh, you know, nobody is primarily in their identity of Vasha. They're a Modbanya or something, you know, um, or they're Hindu. Uh, so there's a, there's a supra-caste identity and there's, um, you know, a subcaste identity. And those are really the important ones. Uh, people care that they're Hindu or, you know, they're devotees of Vishnu or Shiva um, or they're Jati. But the caste identity itself is uh, an abstraction. And, you know, sometimes in America you run into people who say, well, I'm Brahmin and that's what I am. But really that's because they're American, they're Indian American. And to be candid, there's no really no organization of jatis in the United States. So uh, in India, uh, people would be less likely to say, I mean, they will say they're Brahmin, but really what matters is they're Ayers, which is, you know, they're Tamil Brahmins, or, you know, they're Gujarati Brahmins, or, you know, they're Moyal Brahmins from Punjab. Uh, those are the real categories, the real social, economic, cultural units. Uh, there is no pan-Brahmin culture in India, um, even if there are tendencies. So, for example, you could say Brahmins are vegetarian. They tend to be, uh, you know, there's maybe more vegetarian um, than a lot of other communities around them, especially in South India, I think. But um, Bengali Brahmins, uh, you know, they eat chicken and fish. Uh, they definitely eat fish. They have ritual explanations why they have to eat fish in Bengal. And Kashmiri Brahmins, Pandits, uh, like uh, Nehru's family, um, you know, the, the family of the you know prime ministers of India initially, uh, Nehru and Indira Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi um, and now, you know, uh, the the current Gandhi uh, scions, at least, although it's diluted. But in any case, um, the Kashmiri Pandits, they eat mutton and, and stuff like that. So, it's you know, um, we need to look at Jatis, we need to look at Varnas, and that's what really matters. Um, I want to talk about, though, this idea of Varna um, in a non-Indian context. Um, so there's something called the trifunctional hypothesis, which was pioneered in the early 20th century by a French uh, mythologist, uh, Georges, uh, Georges de Mizel. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it very well. But de Mizel, um, he proposed this idea that Indo-European societies did have a caste class system, a tripartite ideology of priests, warriors, and commoners. And they corresponded to three sacred functions, of, or they corresponded to three functions, the sacred, the martial, and the economic. This is a clear correspondence um, taken from you know, Indian civilization, where you have um, uh, the warriors and the nobles, the kshatriyas, uh, you have the priests who are the Brahmins, 
And you have the commoners who are the Vashyas, so the tradesmen and whatnot, the freeborn. Um, outside of this system in the Indian context, uh, you have uh, Shudras uh, who, you know, they serve uh, the three top castes who are have ritual significance as twice-born, they're reborn twice. Um, you know, in, in ethnographic context, people often say, well, the top three castes are probably the invading Aryans, and outside of them are the indigenous conquered people. So the Sudras um, are, you know, outside of this system uh, of Aryan society initially. And then below the Sudras, the Sudras are interacting with, they're serving with, uh, they're subordinate to the top three castes in the Indian caste system. Uh, there are the untouchables, uh, the Dalits, and I'll just use the word Dalits from now on because that's the politically correct term. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of other terms. And so those groups are outside of the caste system in a technical way. They are not even Sudras. Sudras can listen to the Vedas. Uh, Dalits can, are not supposed to even listen to the Vedas. You know, some contexts, some traditions. But um, going back to the Indo-European system, Indo-Europeans do not have Sudras or Dalits uh, in any formalized way. Uh, so the original Indo-Europeans were probably from the Pontic steppe, as most of you know. Um, if you have not been sleeping under a rock and you have been uh, listening to my podcast and reading my pieces, and um, these people from the Pontic steppe uh, did not seem to you know, have a formalized system of outcasts. Initially, they were probably pretty egalitarian or, you know, I don't want to overemphasize it, but, you know, they, they might not have initially had slaves, uh, you know, as initially primary producers, uh, subordinates, you know, people they conquered. That was a later thing. And so they had these three groups and, um, you know, they exist in other societies outside of India. Uh, so early Germanic society was quite clear um, where there's a difference between the nobles and the commoners, the freeborn, you know, of the community. And also the nobles themselves, there's often a sacred king and a real king, a temporal king. And the sacred king kind of had a relationship with the gods and the, the temporal king was the war leader. And so that might be a Kshatriya priest division that you see there. Um, in Norse mythology, you see a division uh, between various gods, uh, ones having to do with fertility, ones having to do with uh, you know law and justice, and ones having to do with rule and sovereignty. And so, you know, Demazil says that this has something to do with the tripartite division. In Plato's The Republic, um, there is also um, some sort of tripartite division in the class. Um, uh, uh, that, you know, divides people in terms of um, uh, rulers, uh, producing classes, and some auxil auxiliaries, um, um, like guardians and, you know, people to help the rulers. Uh, so this seems to recur. Now, three is a useful number to organize society, so I wouldn't put too much into this. Um, but I do think that there's probably, um, there's probably, like, some original idea uh, of the caste system. And in fact, in, in Iran, which does not have a Hindu caste system, caste system before uh, Islamization, but it does seem like the Zoroastrian Iranian society um, did have um, some sort of caste-like divisions between uh, the noble elites, um, the priestly castes, the priestly group, the Iranian priests. And, you know, Parsis have priestly families, uh, Indians, Zoroastrians um, still. And then, of course, uh, just the average Zoroastrian Persian, uh, who would be equivalent to Vashya, like freeborn. So in the Indian system, Vashya is often seen as, you know, some sort of high caste group. But in the Indo-European system, that is just the regular person 
who is nevertheless part of the in-group and part of the community. And so, you know, if um, in sorts of elective kinships, you can imagine that the sort of person would be part of the citizen body uh, that participated in, uh, you know, governing. Now, um, in an Athenian democracy, it would be part of the free, you know, citizen voting class, which is actually the minority, small minority in the Athenian, quote, democracy. Um, in the post-Roman period, I, I, I do know that um, one of the uh, notable aspects of the migration uh, of Germanic peoples, like so, for example, the Saxons and others, uh, into uh, the Roman Empire and elsewhere in Britain, uh, was that there was a selective migration of the warrior nobility, um, the ruling elite of these groups, and they left behind uh, a lot of the peasants. And this this kind of um, dynamic actually did cause a problem because with no warriors left, the Germanic societies actually kind of uh, regressed in parts of Central Europe. So by um, you know early medieval period, you see uh, you see Slavic groups that are to the east of the El or west of the Elba, uh, and the drive to the east, the Germanic drive to the east, is actually in many ways a reconquest uh, of territories that Germans had been living in before. Gothic peoples, who, as some of you know, pushed all the way to the estuary of the Danube and what do we call Moldova and Western Ukraine, uh, you know. So, um, what happened was the removal of the elites probably resulted in the conquest and assimilation of uh, Germanic peasants, uh, of what we would call Vashia freeborn, into uh, Slavic tribes as they expanded westward. And I think um, that illustrates the essential role of ruling elites in kind of maintaining uh, ethno-tribal uh, coherency. Otherwise, the um, you know producing classes seem to uh, culturally shift. So um, shifting, speaking of shifting, um, Let's talk a little bit, though, about caste and other societies, because there are caste-like things that happen or have occurred. I think that the most primary, clear example uh, that you would know about would be the Barukamen, also called the Eta in Japan. Um, if you don't know about it, Google it. Uh, these are people who are descendants of or traditionally were worked with leather, uh, killing of animals. Um, these are polluting activities in a uh, both Shinto and Buddhist context in Japan, um, in you know Dharmic religions killing professions often have very negative connotations and result in ritual impurity. And so Barukamen, they lived in segregated parts of Japanese cities. They intermarried only with themselves. Uh, they are uh, you know, marginalized. Their incomes are lower. Um, they tend to dominate the Yakuza, which is the Japanese, you know, organized crime. Yeah. So uh, they are a classic example of a caste, but uh, they only emerged you know, around the 15th century, 16th century, their status was formalized under Tokugawa, under the Tokugawa, the, well, the shogunate founded by Tokugawa Aisi, Aisu, Ayasu in the late, um, you know, in the early, early 1600s, you know, around that period, early 17th century. And so they're relatively, you know, we've seen how they were created in history. They're not really genetically that different than the average Japanese because they came out of, uh, you know, the average Japanese person. Um, who just happened to be working in leatherworking and 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 all that? Um, all of these like you know ritually impure uh, professions. Um, probably they're. I mean, they are intermarrying now with the rest of the population, and so you know maybe if they had been distinct for another five hundred years, they would have started to be. They probably would have started to be distinct actually, but they've only been endogamous 
and isolated for like about three centuries, you know? So that's just not enough. And they also like, you know, emerge out of all these diverse groups that were doing these professions. Um, in Europe, you do actually have Cagots, C-A-G-O-T-S. Uh, they were segregated in large parts of Southern France and they kind of disappeared in the 19th century. They were assimilated. Nobody really knows who, what, what's going on with them and who they were. There's a theory that they might be descended from um, Muslims who settled in, you know, Iberia and southern France and, uh, you know, eventually became Christianized. But, you know, their distinction was um, notable. Um, so apparently they're noted as early as 1000, you know, A.D. Yeah, they're just, they're just kind of mysterious. Mysterious. Uh, so in Gascony, where there's a lot of them, they're called Cagets. In Bordeaux, they're called Gahets. And there's all sorts of weird names for them. And um, they tended to be in the, the south of France more. Um, they were not allowed to marry non-Cagets. Um, and uh, yeah, they lived in separate separate areas. There were professions they were prohibited from, uh, food or wine. They were prevented from touching food at the market. So they did have ritual impurities. Couldn't work with livestock, enter mills. Uh, they often had to be carpenters, woodcutters, rope makers, and stuff. So, I mean, that sounds like um, like a caste system. And so that is, uh, that is um, you know, pretty interesting. Um, needs to be more study on that. There were similar types of things that actually happened to people who were, say, executioners. Um, that became a hereditary profession in parts of Europe, but it never really crystallized into a full-blown caste system in the way that you see in India. Um, so I I have a hard time, you know, wanting to use the word uh, in that context. So it's like saying like communism is a religion. It has religion-like aspects, but it's not quite a religion, you know. Um, Stalin dies, you know. In religion, gods don't die. If they die, they come back. So there's just differences between a religion and a political ideology. Similarly, there's differences between caste-like institutions and societies and India's very, very defined caste system. So I can go I mean, on and on. Most of you know in South America, there is a caste-like system that's a kind of a pigmentocracy where you know Creoles and, and white elites tend to dominate and indigenous people are at the bottom, indigenous and descendants of African slaves. Uh, but in South America, all these people are mixed. Most of People who are not descendants of recent immigrants in South America who are white have indigenous ancestry. Many have African ancestry. Some of them have quite a bit of indigenous ancestry, the 15, 20%. So there's intermarriage between the different groups. So they are somewhat distinct, but they intermarry and the system is, is soft in its um, enforcement and its norm following. So if someone is a mestizo mixed race background, but they become very wealthy and successful, uh, you know, they can intermarry with, quote, white people, which is basically people who are mostly genetically white, uh, look white, um, you know, and, you know, adhere to Spanish, you know, they want to be Castilian norms or whatever. Um, but the point here is, in Latin America, the system is pretty soft. Similarly, in the Arab world, there are caste systems and there is racism, but, um, you know, the um, Prince Bandar Ibn Sultan, I believe, uh, his mother was an Ethiopian slave. But he is paternally the descendant of the founder of Saudi Arabia. And so he is part of the royal family. Even though he experienced racism, he's also a royal. And so um, in the Arab society, paternal lineage matters a lot. 
So in some ways, Bandar is inferior to the typical Saudi uh, because of his race, and he has been the target of racism. But his wife is a cousin of his from, I'm going to just say, unblemished blood. Um, so, you know, he has children that are of high status in the Saudi system because his paternal lineage is from the royal family. He is a royal. So in Saudi Arabia, you don't have a real caste system. You have, you know, all the bad things that we associate with caste systems. But again, it's not like strictly organized, formalized, and like, you know, rock hard, solid, like it is in the Indian subcontinent. Um, in India itself, obviously there are castes, there is Jati Varna. Um, one of the things that people will tell you is um, it's not simply a Hindu custom. It's not simply a Hindu tradition. There are castes that Muslims and Christians uh, and even Sikhs uh, follow. I say even Sikhs because that was originally kind of founded as an anti-caste um, religion that kind of came out of uh, the Indian traditions. Um, you know, I think Sikhs will get offended if I say it's a synthesis of Islam and Hinduism because it's not, but you know, I mean, your mileage may vary. Just look into it. Um, it I would say it's dharmic, but, um, you know, it has been influenced and shaped by interaction with uh, what Indians would call Abrahamic religions. Um, but in any case, caste isn't present, present everywhere on the subcontinent among all different religions and groups. So it's not simply Hindu, but there are groups uh, like scheduled tribes, like tribes, who are outside of the caste system and who do not really practice caste uh, and the you know ritual purity rules that come down from the Hindu caste system. And so that shows that in some ways, uh, these Muslims and Christians who practice caste are more Indianized than the tribal people that have lived here or lived in the subcontinent forever. So I mean, what's going on here? And what's really going on is um, why are there Muslim castes? Why are there Christian castes? So... Uh, the issue is in the Indian subcontinent, with exceptions, most of the time, communities, jatis, uh, convert uh, as a unit, sub-jatis or a village. And so you bring your whole community along, and so you just preserve the social order that pre-existed um, your conversion. So in Pakistan, um, most of uh, the Christians are descendants of untouchable sweepers. Uh, just they they did menial labor and and you know cleaning and whatnot, and um, there is a um, right, they used to be called churas. That's considered pejorative. Um, it's a really bad word. I sh you know Indian and Pakistani uh, listeners will probably be offended, but you know most of you speak English, right? And so uh, they're called different words now. But in any case, the point is, Christ they're Christian now. They converted to Christianity. Ninety percent of the Christians in Pakistan are descendants of uh you know what we call dalits in india so they're dalit christians and the muslims um they treat them um obviously as a religious minority they oppress them they persecute them as in the muslim world but they're also clear hindu caste like hindu like you know i don't want to offend people but hindu like behavior you would not see in the other parts of the islamic world so you know there are advertisements for uh, you know sanitation workers and they say christians only ap apply and why do they do this in Pakistan? Why do they have Christian-exclusive jobs? Well, because their caste origin is as sanitation workers, as cleaners, as manual scavengers, which is exactly what you see on the other side of the border. You know, similarly among Muslims, uh, you know, a lot of them claim Arab or Iranian ancestry, so that's somewhat a different thing, but they are also separated into caste-like groups uh, that do not necessarily intermarry. Um, they remember their professions, their endogamy, their, you know, lineage, whatnot there are 
Jat Muslims. So Jats are particular Jati, a group of castes, subcastes um, that. And so I should say, this is complicated. I should say um, there are Jats, and then within the Jats, there are lineages. So there are like subcastes within the subcaste. So when you say you are a Jat, um, that does mean a lot. But even within that, uh, there are narrower associations. So, for example, Bania is a particular type of, you know, Vashya, ritual Vashya, trading caste in general, mercantile caste um, that is found in northwest India. But there are different types of Banias. And, uh, you know, Gandhi was a Mod Bania. So that's, uh, they're very well off. Uh, there are many Mod Bania who are very rich in India, but uh, they're very. They're subcast of a subcast, so I, I just want to be clear about that. I know all these details, and you know, I know it's complicated, but you know, I want to be clear for the South Asian Indian listeners that I know what I'm talking about here a little bit. Um, so, you know, even in Pakistan, there is caste. There's also something called Birdari, which is more of a Northwest Indian Punjabi thing, um, which is like you know, lineage clan groups. And so, when you look at the genetics, they don't look that different than Hindus across the the border. Um, in terms of people are endogamous, they tend to hang out with their own kind. Of course, Islam, you know, it's technically egalitarian and universal, so I think it does tend to slowly wear things down. And I think this you see it in Bangladesh. You don't see genetic structure among Muslims. It looks like endogamy kind of ended, and people don't keep track of... I mean, I don't... I mean, I know my family backgrounds mostly. When they were Hindu, they were Kayasta. There's one Brahmin lineage, but really... Um, People don't keep track of that stuff. It's more like the United States or China where they're like, you know, show me the money. Like, what's your, you know, do you guys have education? Do you have money? They, money, they don't really care about the caste stuff. They don't know about it. But I think in Pakistan, it's still kind of used in certain ways. And if you're a Sayyid, if you're descended from Muhammad uh, through Ali, that's also a different thing. So um, these, these tendencies continue. In Sri Lanka, a recent paper came out, and I kind of knew this, just looking at the data from the Sri Lanka Tamil sample in the Thousand Genomes, there is some caste-like structure, it looks like, but it looks like it's much more attenuated uh, than the mainland. And Sri Lanka is predominantly Buddhist island, as you know, but there's a Hindu minority, as well as some Christians, but mostly Hindu, um, of Tamils. So um, Sri Lanka is a somewhat different case, and it shows uh, an in-between in position, kind of like Pakistan, but even arguably more admixed and less endogamous than Pakistan. So this shows that just because you're racially subcontinental, you don't automatically do caste. It seems to be a cultural um, practice that occurs and doesn't occur. In the Christian context, I want to say um, there are castes as well. Many Christians, I think especially in the North, uh, just like in Pakistan, descend from Dalits, and they maintain their caste uh, you know, identity in some ways, um, even though they shouldn't. And I'm going to talk about the legal issues where, you know, they don't have their caste identity, supposedly. But um, in South India, in Kerala, there are there's a group called Nasranis who claim to be descended from Jews. They've been Christian for a long time. They have, um, you know, they're not European Christian in their identity. Some of them are Roman Catholic and Protestant, but most are, you know, they have Eastern Rite Christians. So they're Jacobite, Church of the East. I don't want to get into the details, but their Christianity really originates in, you know, uh, the Levant and, and Iraq. Really, Iraq, Church of the East, probably originally, but they shifted their affiliation to the Jacobite Church in Syria uh, after the arrival of the Portuguese, who forced some of them to be Roman Catholics. Um, again, it's complicated. There are there are Eastern Rite Christians in in Kerala who are are um, in communion with Rome, so they're you know 
Catholic Eastern Rite. And then there are others that are in communion with the Church of the East, uh, which is now, I think, based in Chicago. Originally, it was in Iraq. And then there's others that are, you know, with Syria, uh, the Syrian Jacobite Church. And then there's others that are in communion now with the Anglican. The point is they're indigenous insofar as they've been around for a couple thousand years, at least a thousand years. In the caste context, they are, they are high. They're relatively high status. Are they equivalent to an upper caste? Um, genetically, they look to be mostly, but not exclusively, converted from the Nair caste, which is not Brahmin, but it, it is an upper caste in um, Kerala. And these Christians have had issues with, you know, Dalit converts, obviously, because those people have a different caste. And, um, you know, there's this thing that happens where in Indian Christianity, Dalit bishops uh, are assigned to watch over Dalit flocks, you know, so... Again, the caste system is perpetuating itself within Christianity. And this has been a massive argument within the Christian churches. Uh, many of the Protestant churches, for example, are very um, militant against caste. They try to break it down. Catholic Church has taken a more um, neutral stance insofar as they do not condone or support the system, but um, they will work with the cultural system as it is. Um, and if this is how the local people organize themselves, so be it. Um, so... And then, um, yeah, so that's that, um, you know, it exists outside of, of, um, of Hinduism, um, throughout the Indian, um, culture. And so there's, um, a debate about whether, uh, caste system is, uh, you know, constitutively, I guess, uh, the word I would use, uh, associated with Hinduism. And this is a uh, very, you know, complicated and emotionally fraught argument because a lot of Hindus do not like it being associated with caste system or the caste system being associated with their religion. They are very religious, but they are very anti-caste. Whereas, you know, I mean, as early as Al-Biruni a thousand years ago or Magastines more than 2,000 years ago, uh, the caste system has been part of the Hindu-Indian, because Hindu was just the word. If you want to listen to the last 45 minutes, you know where to subscribe.